You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part nine in our series on James Cook. In this episode, we continue with Cook's third and final voyage. Last time, we got him from England to Hawaii. Today, we will follow along with Cook to North America and the Arctic in search of the Northwest Passage. One note for today. Go to explorerspodcast.com to see a map of Cook's route. As we are covering a lot of new territory, it will very much help you understand today's narrative. And with that, let's get going. It was January 18, 1778. Cook and his two ships, Resolution and Discovery, had reached the Hawaiian Islands, specifically the island of Kauai. A little background on the region. Hawaii is an archipelago consisting of eight major islands, plus another 129 smaller ones. The archipelago stretches from east to west for more than 1,500 miles, or 2,400 kilometers. Now, the main eight islands are found on the eastern end of the archipelago. These islands are only a few hundred miles apart. Cook would only sight three of these islands on his first visit. He called them the Sandwich Islands, in honor of his sponsor, Lord Sandwich. It was an odd choice, as Cook had called some islands in the South Atlantic the Sandwich Islands as well. To avoid confusion, that one was eventually named the South Sandwich Islands. The Hawaiian Islands had been settled by Polynesians between 300 and 1100 CE, and the natives spoke a Polynesian dialect, so the English and the islanders could understand each other, for the most part. The islands are mountainous, with fertile volcanic soil. There are rivers and streams and lush valleys. At the time of Cook's arrival, there was lots of cultivated land and a wide variety of foods. This included coconuts, sugarcane, potatoes, yams, taro, hogs, chickens, and lots and lots of fish. It made for a thriving society. Cook is acknowledged as the first European to reach Hawaii. However, I do want to note that there's a good chance some Spanish mariners had, at some point, stumbled across the Hawaiian archipelago. The Spanish sailed regularly across the Pacific, between Mexico and the Philippines. However, the routes took them north and south of the Hawaiian Islands, but it would have only taken one good storm to blow a galleon to the region. As an example, in 1542, Rue Lopez Villalobos reported seeing three islands in this general area while making an early crossing of the ocean. No matter, it is Cook who gets the prize as the first European to reach Hawaii, and the islands are probably his greatest discovery as an explorer. The Hawaiian Islanders, after some initial nervousness, were friendly and they were eager to trade with the British, and it became clear very quickly what the Islanders wanted, metal. They didn't care about beads or cloth or trinkets. They wanted axes, hammers, and nails, anything with metal. The island had no history of metallurgy. 
In exchange, the British received pigs, potatoes, and coconuts, plus they replenished their supplies of fresh water. The encounters with the Hawaiian people were, for the most part, a positive thing. However, early on there was an incident that nearly derailed interactions right from the get-go. At one spot on Kauai, Cook sent Lieutenant John Williamson ashore to scout out a potential base. Williamson, a notoriously temperamental man, panicked as his boat was swarmed by excited natives as it came ashore. Well, Williamson became flustered by the pack of islanders, who were likely trying to help pull the boat onto the beach. In his confusion, he shot one man, killing him. Even Cook's own men condemned the killing, calling it an unnecessary and cowardly action. It was a stupid move by Williamson, and Cook probably shouldn't have sent the man into such a situation in the first place. Thankfully for Cook, the incident didn't undermine the general relations between the British and the islanders. The British moved on and eventually anchored off a settlement named Waimea on Kauai. This time, Cook went ashore himself and was greeted by hundreds of people. And here, something happened that has fascinated historians for centuries. Hundreds of people bowed down before Cook, who wrote, quote, They all fell flat on their faces and remained in that humble posture till I made signs to rise. End quote. And so begins a colorful and controversial subject, the belief that Cook was a god. The English said that Cook was called Ronau by the natives, which could be interpreted as Lonau, the Hawaiian god associated with fertility, agriculture, rainfall, music, and peace. Now, I'm not going to dive into this part of our story until next time on Cook's second visit to Hawaii, but know that there are some who do believe that the Hawaiians did look at Cook as some sort of deity. Again, I will talk about more of that in our next episode. And so, the British stayed in Hawaii for five weeks. They repaired their ships, added food, such as pigs, chickens, potatoes, and taro. The latter is a starchy vegetable and is mashed up to make poi, a staple of the Hawaiian diet. Cook ordered his men to steer clear of relations with the native women, as many of the men were suffering from venereal disease. He didn't want to inflict such a thing on the islanders. How closely the men followed that order, we don't really know, but it's unlikely they avoided sexual relations if they got the chance. Anyhow, Cook learned more about the islanders and the region, finding the Hawaiians to be an efficient and warlike society, with each island its own separate kingdom. Cook and one of his officers, Lieutenant James King, the latter a curious and learned young man, took the time to ponder and admire the spread of the Polynesian culture in the Pacific. The British had found the Polynesian tongue spoken all the way from Hawaii to Easter Island to New Zealand. This is called the Polynesian Triangle, an area of 10 million square miles of ocean. It ranges 4,200 miles from east to west and 3,300 miles north to south. That's 6,800 and 5,300 kilometers, respectively. In this area, Cook had found people with a shared culture and language. It really demonstrates how amazing the Polynesian people were at exploring. I've had listeners ask me to do a series on the Polynesian and their spread throughout the Pacific. The lack of written sources makes that hard, but after doing this series on Cook, I am fascinated on the subject. For these people to have crossed thousands and thousands of miles of ocean in canoes is just amazing. Oh well, someday we will cover that story. Back to Cook. Resolution and Discovery departed the Hawaiian Islands on February 21, 1778. The destination was New Albion, the western coast of North America. By the way, Cook's orders were to reach New Albion by February of 1777, so he was essentially a year behind schedule. Now, a quick explanation as to Cook's strategy once in America. Remember, he's looking for the Northwest Passage, so he was going to head up the coast and investigate any possible strait that might lead into the continent and eventually go to Hudson Bay. But the more likely thing was to go way north and sail along the northern coast of North America and find a way to either Hudson Bay or Baffin Bay. 
The latter is between Greenland and Canada. If you reach those areas by ship, you've got your route between the Atlantic and the Pacific. Key point here. The maps of the northwest coast of the continent were bad or non-existent. The Russians had gone down the coast of Alaska for a ways, but those maps were sketchy and in some cases terribly wrong. Because of this, Cook was under the impression that the western coast of North America went much more straight up and down, instead of curving northwest as you went along the Canadian and Alaskan coasts. No matter, Cook expected to reach the Arctic waters around 65 degrees north by summer. This would allow him to then turn east and search for the Northwest Passage in the warmest time of year, meaning ice would be at a minimum. And so, towards North America sailed resolution and discovery. The small fleet went northwest for about 2,500 miles, or 4,000 kilometers, sighting land on March 7, 1778. They were at a place called Cape Foulweather on the Oregon coast, not far from present-day Eugene, Oregon. This is approximately between present-day Vancouver and San Francisco. New Albion had been visited once by a British explorer, Sir Francis Drake, some 200 years earlier. However, these lands were claimed by Spain, although their northernmost base was at San Diego. Spanish friars had established a mission in San Francisco only two years earlier, in 1776. Spanish explorers had pressed up the coast at the same time, with Juan Francisco de la Bodega y Cuadra reaching as far north as present-day Juneau, Alaska. All this gave the Spanish a claim to the region. Cook had very specific instructions not to upset the Spanish in any way. Remember, England was at war with their American colonies, and the last thing they wanted was some incident that would cause the Spanish to join the war as an American ally. In addition to the Spanish, there was the looming presence of the Russians, who were gradually moving down the Alaskan coast. These were mostly fur traders. In Cook's time, the Russians had outposts as far south as the Aleutian Islands. So, upon Cook's arrival, his two ships were quickly driven south by a storm, all the way to the Oregon-California border. It was a full week before Cook was back to his starting point. And so north went Cook and his ships. Along the way, they did not investigate every river and sound that they encountered, and this was for two reasons. One, Cook's orders were to find the Northwest Passage. Rivers were cool to map, but in reality, this far south, they weren't going to be a route across the continent. Thus, Cook didn't dwell too much on such geographic sites. And the second reason was the coast of the Pacific Northwest is notoriously foggy, and the weather was not always favorable. We've seen this before, with Francis Drake sailing right past San Francisco Bay and not realizing it was there. Cook, by the way, has been dinged by some scholars for missing the Columbia River, as well as the Strait of San Juan de Fuca, which separates Vancouver Island with the state of Washington. The strait takes you to what is modern-day Seattle and Vancouver. Critics of Cook say he was off his game, or getting lazy, or losing his innate sense of curiosity. But his defenders point out that he was following orders and keeping to the plan. He needed to keep moving and reach 65 degrees north to go searching for the Northwest Passage this upcoming summer. Plus, Cook was dealing with storms. He wasn't always able to sail right up along the coast. His ships were often pushed out to sea, out of sight of land. In the end, Cook kept going north as he had been ordered. He was not there to survey every mile of the coast. And again, I cannot stress how important it was to get north for Cook. He knew what a polar environment was like. He needed to reach the Arctic at the height of summer to maximize the warmer weather. So as Cook's vessels cruised along Vancouver Island, it became apparent that both ships needed some repairs. This led to Cook sailing into Nootka Sound, which is on the western side of Vancouver Island. Cook, by the way, didn't realize that Vancouver Island was an island. Anyhow, the vessels put into a harbor they named Ship's Cove, Cook setting foot on North American soil for the first time. 
Here the men went to work repairing the ships, which included replacing the masts and the rigging. There was no shortage of timber. As the repairs were made, the crew and Cook were able to enjoy the region. In his writings, Cook took note of the beauty of the land, including the hills, forests, and snow-capped peaks. We have numerous diaries of the men of the fleet, and it's interesting to see what struck each person. Dr. William Anderson was fascinated by the number of birds, including bald eagles, albatrosses, ducks, gulls, and a thousand other species. Lieutenant Jim Burney was struck by the songs of the birds. Their sounds filled the air, especially on a calm day. Others enjoyed exploring, including Resolution's master, William Bly. Midshipman George Vancouver didn't know it, but he was not done with the region. He would return to the area in the early 1790s, mapping many of its famous locations. As you probably guessed, Vancouver Island and the city of Vancouver are named after the man, but his story is for a later episode. Another distraction for the crew were the local natives. They came out to the ships in dozens of canoes. They were often described as wild and savage and dirty. They had copper-colored bodies, their faces painted red and black. The crew were not only visited by the locals, but they went to the native settlements, primarily to trade. For the men, the big attraction was the numerous animal pelts, including bear, wolf, and fox. But the most desired was the sea otter. A single nail could land a pelt, which were used to make clothing for the upcoming winter. Of course, another attraction for the crew were the women. One thing I want to mention is that on the return to Europe, the ships would stop at some Asian ports and find that North American furs were highly valued. On his return to England, Lieutenant James King would write a report about the potential fur trade in the Pacific Northwest. His report, and that of others, helped start a rush of fur traders coming to the region. Anyhow, Cook seems to have enjoyed his life at Nootka Sound, taking time to visit the natives and explore the region. Midshipman James Trevenin wrote, quote, Captain Cook also on these occasions would sometimes relax from his almost constant severity of disposition and condescended now and then to converse familiarly with us. But it was only for a time. As soon as on board the ship, he became again a despot. End quote. Interesting to see Cook described as a despot. However, I'm not sure if those words translate today as they did 250 years ago. We can't forget that Cook was a Navy captain. They are often described as gods on their ship. So to say that the man was a despot on his own vessel may sound harsh to us, but it might have simply been the reality of the situation. Resolution and Discovery spent a month at Nootka Sound, from March 29 through April 26, 1778. By May 1st, the expedition would reach 55 degrees north, roughly around the southernmost point of Alaska. Cook and his men all thought that they would soon reach 65 degrees north, and then the real search for the Northwest Passage could begin. Remember, there was a 20,000-pound prize for finding the passage, and every man in the expedition expected to get a piece of that prize money. So the crew, while not thrilled about heading into the cold, were eager to be on the move. The ships were now approaching the northernmost reach of the Spanish expeditions, and coming to the area explored by Vitus Bering almost 50 years earlier. Bering, by the way, was a Danish explorer who had done most of his work employed by the Russian crown. And speaking of the cold, I want to mention that it was affecting some of the men, in particular Charlie Clerk, the captain of Discovery, and William Anderson, Resolution's doctor. Both men had tuberculosis, and the cold had a dramatic effect on them. It was clear to many on the ship that neither would survive the voyage. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. 
And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Resolution and Discovery sailed north along the Alaskan coast, enduring rough weather, difficult tides, and tricky currents. The coastline here is maddening, and it features a million islands and inlets and bays. For Cook, he had to check out the most promising ones, in case they offered a passage into the northern ocean. It made progress slow. Now, all that was a bit frustrating to Cook, but another looming issue that was facing him was the direction of the coastline. The coastline of Alaska veers northwest, not north. And not just by a little, but a lot. This worried Cook as he had not expected such a dramatic shift in direction. Oh well, he could only press on and hope that an opening to the north would be found. But let's be honest, that's not going to happen, at least not for a while. When Resolution and Discovery reached Prince William Sound on May 12th, which is not far from present-day Anchorage, they were forced to stop and make repairs. The ships were leaking and the masts and rigging were already falling apart after only a couple of months. Prince William Sound, which is quite large, was investigated, but no passage through it was found. One interesting discovery was that the local natives possessed colored beads, meaning they were likely in contact with Russian traders from the west. And while I have not talked much about it, the ships did interact and trade whenever possible with the natives. The expedition continued on, and it wasn't long before they discovered a large gulf. Cook spent 16 days exploring what today we call the Cook Inlet. This extends inland around 200 miles, or 320 kilometers, and leads to modern-day Anchorage. It was interesting stuff, but it was not leading the ships into the northern ocean. Cook eventually retreated from the strait and continued along the Alaskan coast. Which leads to another disturbing situation. The coastline wasn't going northwest anymore, but instead it was heading southwest. Again, look at a map and you'll see what I'm talking about. Cook and his ships had reached 60 degrees north, but now they were heading away from their desired destination. It was discouraging, but there was nothing they could do about it but press on. Resolution and Discovery sailed past Kodiak Island and began to follow the length of the Alaskan Peninsula. This is the long, pointy spear of land that sticks out of the southwest corner of the state. This extends about 560 miles, or 900 kilometers, from the mouth of the Cook Inlet. North of the peninsula is the Bering Sea, which is where Cook needed to go. But there's no passage through the peninsula, although Cook didn't know that, and he moved along, seeking such a route. The weather didn't help. Some of the words commonly used to describe the area by Cook and his men included raw, cold, and gloomy. Add in thick and persistent fog, and it made it difficult to navigate. There were so many islands, Cook even stopped naming them. And again, he was still heading southwest, which frustrated everyone. And once the Alaskan Peninsula ends, things didn't get much better as the Aleutian Islands began. The fog here is so thick and persistent, you just can't see where the islands begin and end. You have to probe into them, which means risking hitting rocks or shoals or getting caught in a nasty current. Even as Cook sailed down the length of the Aleutian Islands, he didn't know that the Bering Sea was just beyond them. As far as he knew, he was at the edge of solid land. Along the way, the British traded with the native islanders, the Aleuts. The British found they possessed tobacco. 
This had been given to them by Russian fur traders. The islanders got addicted to it, and it gave the Russians a way to guarantee future trade. No furs, no tobacco. On June 25th, Cook spotted a wide passage into the Bering Sea at the western end of Unimak Island. Cook, uncharacteristically, mistook it as an inlet and passed it by. In doing so, he missed the best passage into the Bering Sea. I want to note that some historians see red flags regarding Cook's decision-making at this time. They see erratic behavior. One day Cook will be ultra-cautious, and the next day needlessly reckless. And I'll be honest, I really don't have an answer. We have, without question, seen Cook make some decisions that appear out of character for him, such as cutting off the ears of thieves in the Tongan Islands. But I wonder if people read too much into every action or non-action of Cook's. He is different, so they want to jump on every decision and overanalyze it. Personally, I wonder if it's simply a mix of a bunch of things. It's a bit of anxiety, a bit of overblown ego, a bit of a man with an enormous amount of experience trusting his gut a bit more than he used to. Again, I just can't say any one thing for sure. Anyhow, the next day, Cook led his ships into a thick fog, the visibility less than 300 feet or 100 meters. It was a dangerous route that Cook was taking, which I had just noted, contrasted to the cautiousness displayed the previous day. What Cook didn't realize was that he had entered the Anaga Pass, which takes you along the northeast side of Unalaska Island and into the Bering Sea. The ships passed through some rows of rocks in the fog without realizing the dangers. Only the crashing of water against the rocks alerted the ships to the nearby peril, with Discovery's master, Thomas Edgar, saying that the ships had only been a few minutes from sailing right onto the shore. Cook would later say that he would not have tried the passage if he had seen what lay before him. Instead, he had, critics claimed, recklessly plowed forward at unsafe speeds in heavy fog. Of the passage, Charlie Kirk said, drolly, quote, Very nice pilotage, considering our perfect ignorance of the situation and the total darkness which prevented our attaining any kind of knowledge of it, end quote. No matter, Resolution and Discovery would sail through the Aleutian Islands and into the Bering Sea in late June. After that, they would put into a harbor on Unalaska Island. They waited there until June 2nd, weathering some bad storms, before setting out again. Cook sailed his vessels to the Alaskan coast and started going north again. However, this was immensely slow, and the summer was already beginning to slip away from him. The coast is littered with islands and shoals and inlets. Add in fog so thick you couldn't see the length of the ship, it meant a plodding pace. Cook did this because he was afraid of missing a passage that might lead them east, but he hated wasting so much time sailing into every bay or sound. And with time becoming more and more important, Cook made the decision to head northwest into the Bering Sea, away from the Alaskan coast. The reason for this was that if the ships were out in the ocean, away from the coast, the fog and dangerous waters wouldn't slow them down. And he was right. Once at sea, resolution and discovery quickly covered more than 250 miles. On July 30th, they came to St. Matthew Island, which is between Alaska and Siberia. The fog here was so thick, the ships took to ringing bells and beating drums to stay in contact. Cook continued north, eventually sighting St. Lawrence Island and next the Seward Peninsula, not far from modern-day Nome, Alaska. However, along the way, on August 3rd, there was a major loss when William Anderson, the ship's doctor, died from tuberculosis. He had been a well-liked and skilled physician, and he had done much of the ethnographic work on the expedition. On June 9th, off the tip of the Seward Peninsula, Cook and his ships reached the western edge of North America. They were at 65 degrees, 46 minutes north. Only about 50 miles, or 80 kilometers, separates Alaska from Siberia. At this point, Cook moved into the Chukchi Sea, but there was already an ominous sign, as drift ice had come early to the surrounding waters. Still, Cook pressed his ships northwest. 
He had, after all, been through this dance on many occasions in the Antarctic. He wasn't going to let a little ice slow him down. The plan was to find a passage east, hopefully to Baffin Bay or Hudson Bay. Despite the cold and fog, Cook kept a good pace for several days, reaching 68 degrees north on August 12th. Here, there was no sign of ice. However, the good luck would only last a few more days. Soon, the ice pack from the north came bearing down on the expedition. And then, on August 17th, 1778, Cook reached 70 degrees 44 minutes north, the furthest north point he would ever attain. The expedition had nearly gotten to the top of Alaska, but could not continue eastward. It's at the top of Alaska that the Beaufort Sea begins, which is acknowledged as the entrance to the actual Northwest Passage. Cook had been stopped about 50 miles, or 80 kilometers, from those waters. As a note, it was said that Cook had come north in a particularly bad year, and in other years, the ice wouldn't have formed so quickly, and he would have been able to move further east. However, in many ways, he was lucky to have been stopped where he had been, and that's because sooner than later, the ships would have been trapped by the ice, and they would not have been able to just retrace their steps to get out. They would have had to wait at least six months before the ice receded. It wouldn't have been until then they could have continued moving east or retreat. And that's assuming they would have been able to stay alive that winter. Anyhow, the next day, Cook turned his ships around for fear of being trapped in the ice. On August 19th, Cook had the men stock up on walrus meat. The great animals were everywhere. They were so loud, the ships used their bellowing to warn them of nearby ice. Cook would order his men to eat the meat, which was mostly despised by the crew. Many of the men were so disgusted by the walrus meat, they submitted a petition to Cook asking for a return to salt meat rations. Cook, frustrated by his thwarted mission, turned his fury on his men. He refused the petition and even ordered any man who refused to eat walrus meat to be put on a diet of biscuits and nothing else. Walrus meat, by the way, is considered less than tasty by most people. The key is to cure the meat properly, something rarely done in these conditions. For a few days, the great walrus meat episode inflamed the passions of the crew. Author Richard Hoff, in his biography of Cook, says the crew were so upset, this moment was the closest that Cook ever came to facing a mutiny. Now, I'm not sure if it was really that serious, but it's clear that there were a lot of unhappy people aboard his ships. I want to note that it is believed that around this time, Cook was suffering from a sickness. I've read that he had a stomach ailment, but I'm not sure exactly what. No matter, he was likely cranky as heck due to the stomach problem, the forced retreat from the north, and now rebellious crewmen. In the end, Cook eventually relented regarding the walrus meat, allowing those who did not want to eat it to receive half portions of salt beef. It was not long after this that the expedition was caught in a massive storm, which drove the ships west, towards Siberia. They went so far west, they got within sight of the Asian continent. Once the weather cleared, Cook decided it was time to do some exploring, this time to the west. If you remember, Cook had been told that he could look for the northeast passage if his other options weren't available to him. This was a route above Siberia and Scandinavia and into the North Sea. No one had ever done this before. Well, Cook stuck to his orders and continued on. He kept out the sea, thinking the ice would gather along Siberia's coast. Through all of this, Cook demonstrated his skills as a navigator in the ice. Sure, he was lucky at times, but most historians and scholars have lauded him for his ability to maneuver a ship through ice pack. Offered David L. McKendry in his biography on Cook, titled Captain Cook Rediscovered, talks in depth about Cook's brilliance in the ice. Nikandri's book demonstrates, unlike any other, how good of a mariner Cook was while amongst the ice packs of both the Arctic and the Antarctic. His work is super detailed and really fascinating. On June 29th, the expedition sighted the Siberian coast. A few days later, Cook knew his western excursion was over. 
The ice was moving in on the ships from all sides, and resolution was leaking badly with three feet of water in the hold. He couldn't go east or west, so it was time to pull back, regroup, and prepare for another go next season. Cook's initial thought was to find winter quarters in Kamchatka on the eastern edge of Siberia. But he worried not only about the cold, but food and supplies. The native peoples of both Siberia and Alaska lived on the edge of survival during the winter months, and he fretted that his nearly 200 men wouldn't be able to gather enough food to get through the winter. And thus Cook decided to move back south, to Hawaii. There, the weather was good and food was easy to come by. A few months of rest and relaxation would do the men wonders. And once the ships were repaired and resupplied, they could head back north next year to have another go at their mission. And that, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. Cook had come to the Pacific with the intention of finding the Northwest Passage, but instead he had, in a single visit, charted the majority of the North American coastline between Oregon and far up the Alaskan coast. It was all pretty amazing. I want to finish up by giving a shout out to the great supporters of the show. This includes Eileen, Robert, Dan, Rudy, Chris, Andrew, Benjamin, Cameron, George, Catherine, Donnell, Christopher, Eamon, Eric, Peter, Elizabeth, Philip, Craig, Ralph, and many, many others. Thanks to you and everyone who helped support the show financially. I appreciate it. If you are interested in helping out the show financially, go to explorerspodcast.com. You can contribute with a direct donation or join our Patreon program. So that is it for today. I hope you enjoyed things. Next time we will get James Cook back to the Hawaiian Islands, where things will not go quite as planned. So join us for that. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows that will inspire and thrill, such as Sleepy and Small Things Often. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution Podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.